Welcome into the Deep Slant Podcast presented by Xfinity. Count on a powerful and secure Wi-Fi connection for all your devices. Xfinity XFi, can your internet do that? Well, welcome into another podcast. It is week six. The Texans are headed up to Indianapolis to face the Colts, looking to snap their losing streak. So we're going to have a preview of that game with my friend Lara Overton, team reporter for the Colts. And also, I had a chance to down with Chris Conley. He scored his first touchdown as a Houston Texan on a flea flicker play. He also became a dad. He also loves Star Wars. He's directed a fan movie. He won a science fair in third grade because he invented something, and uh, he's got lots of hobbies, so I'm just going to put it out there. We got into a great discussion. It was a pretty long interview, by the way, and uh, you know he just has a lot of thoughts on Star Wars. He is a super fan, if I had to qualify. So any Star Wars questions you have that I had, I felt like I asked. Um, one of the burning questions I had was what order to watch the movies in. That's something that I've heard the debate over the years. I have an opinion on it, and he had his opinion, and he explained it very well. We also talked about his college film, and will he direct again? And what about his players? Would he cast his teammates into a Star Wars movie? And if so, what roles would they play? So we got into all that with Chris Conley. So I have that for you today. But first... Texans fans, Xfinity delivers the fastest internet in Houston so you can do more of what you love. Stream the game on a powerful and secure Wi-Fi network and keep your home team happy with a reliable connection for all your devices. Xfinity XFi, can your internet do that? Well, let's just get right into it. He's in year seven, Chris Conley. He is now with the Texans. He played two seasons with the Jaguars, and before his two seasons with the Jaguars, he played three seasons for Kansas City, and here he is as a Texan. He is a great blocking receiver. He says he's one of the best blocking receivers, but you know what? He can catch some touchdowns, too, as we saw against the Patriots. So looking forward to see what the rest of the season has to offer for Chris Conley. But first, get to know him a little bit better because he's a really, really interesting uh, interesting guy with a lot of talents and hobbies. I barely scratched the surface, like I said in this interview, but we really get into it with Chris. So take a listen. He's right here on the Deep Slant Podcast presented by Xfinity. Chris had a big week. Not only did you score your first touchdown as a Houston Texan, you became a dad. So congratulations on both fronts. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it was a lot going on last week, <laughs> but um, thankfully uh, everybody here in the building helped me with that, uh, with the whole process and, and even preparing for a game through that while being back and forth from the hospital. Got a good group of guys here uh, and a good staff and was able to get ready for that game. Didn't quite have the outcome that we wanted, but uh, I'm excited for, for the future of what this team could do. Yeah, we're excited to see you as well. We saw a lot of you in camp and then, you know, throughout these last few games, it seems like you were getting closer and closer. And then you finally get that, that big touchdown, call, the, the flea flicker. Have you ever had a flea flicker touchdown before, or was that your first? Um, I think that might be my first. I've had a couple that could have been called. For some reason, a flea flicker is a really hard play to pull off. Uh, there's a lot of things that have to happen. Uh, there's a timing that everybody on the offense has to be on, and it, and you can't really see the other people when they're deciding, okay, it's time to turn it back into a pass play. And for some reason, you know, the way that we practiced it and the way that we executed it, it kind of ended up being that perfect timing, that perfect balance. We were able to make that play work. It seems like that would be, uh, fr from a receiver's point of view, that that would be a stressful 
to be that'd be a little bit more stressful than just say a normal touchdown because you're like a you're saying bit. there's a lot of things that have to happen just right. I think that you know on any play where a receiver you know catches the ball or scores a touchdown, there's a lot of things that have to happen. The protection has to hold up. The quarterback has to. Uh, see you and deliver a good ball, you have to run a good route. So there's a lot of things that go on, on on every play. But, yes, a flea flicker, even it compounds that even more. But the fact that we were able to pull that one off, especially with us putting that in uh, in such a short amount of time, was is, is good for the, the guys that we have in that, that offensive room. What about for you personally? What's the craziest touchdown you've ever been a part of at any level? The craziest touchdown that I've been a part of Oh, this is such a bad answer, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, my first playoff touchdown was actually here, 2015. That is a bet. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. I was uh-huh. in, uh, in, t- in 2015, I was playing for the Chiefs at the time. Uh, Remember that and, game? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. In the, I think it was maybe the third quarter of that game, I was put in the game on a play that I didn't rep all week, a play that I was told wasn't mine. It was for somebody else, and that guy couldn't run it, I guess, at the time. And so I ran a play that I hadn't practiced or, you know, had no experience with and caught the ball. And I just remember just the, the sounds and the lights and everything. Playoff football is something that's uh, uniquely special. And uh, I'll, rem- I'll always remember that moment. Well, that brings up an interesting question because with the, with the touchdown that you did catch, was that a play that you had that was in practice for several weeks or did it just sort of pop up that week? Had you been waiting for that play to be called or – is that just something that during that week you sort of knew that that was going to be the week that you got uh, executed? That was a that was a week, that was a play that was put in uh, last week. That was a play that was put in specifically for that game. Now there are plays that you have drawn up sometimes and you don't get to them on the call sheet, and those will carry over from week to week until they get called. But then you also have some plays that are kind of drawn up in the dirt as the week goes on, and say, hey, this would be a good play. You got to get everyone on the same page. You don't have that many times to rep. Some plays you don't even rep. You know, there could be uh, – I've seen trick plays before that you didn't even get to rep in practice, but you just called them and they worked. And so it's it's being on the same page with the guys that you're playing with, having a good feel and sense for how you're trying to affect the defense uh, and then getting the ball in the right person's hands. All right, so one of the first things that I learned about you when you signed with the Texans, I, went, I, I write the series called Get to Know. And uh, just in a very cursory search of you – uh, saw your film Retribution, the um, the Star Wars fan film that you made at Georgia. Mm-hmm. So I learned very quickly that you're a big Star Wars buff. So yeah. I watched it. It's 26 minutes. It's it feels like a short feature film. It's pretty intense. You've got stormtroopers. You've got battle scenes. You've got special effects. You've got cameos. You've got extras. How long did something like that take for you to put together? You wrote it, too directed long. it, and starred in it, right? Too long. It took me too long. I I think that the whole the idea gathering process for that probably took me a month and a half. Um, at that point, I didn't know anything about writing scripts, and so it was really just an outline of what I wanted to happen. Then after that, it was more of like the idea of, okay, I wanted to have these sort of choreographed fights that were in it, and so then that took finding the people who would be involved in that took me another month, and choreographing and practicing those fights took another month. And then putting together, gathering these groups of people uh, and finding the people who had the knowledge that I didn't have at the time to make something like that happen. So all in all, that process probably took six to eight months. 
and uh, I learned a lot from it. You know, they'd say if you don't look back at your earlier films and cringe, then <laughs> you didn't you didn't do it right. But I I that's like the number one thing that people when they talk about my love for like t- storytelling or filmmaking, that's the f- number one thing that they bring up because obviously that was my first one, and it's also it kind of went viral back then. But I just oh, it makes me cringe. What makes you things. cringe about? I thought it was I thought that was. For a college student to put something like that together, I expected far less, to be honest, because it was a college production. But it seemed pretty high quality. It's, it, I mean, I don't know how much money you had and how much time you had to do it, but what None. makes you cringe about it? None, really. But it's the fact that what I know now about storytelling and being efficient with the time that you have a viewer, obviously it's 26 minutes long. I didn't know anything about what a short film is. You want to keep a short film under 15 minutes. <laughs> it's not a short uh, film. That's why I call it a not. mini, I call it a mini feature. <laughs> oh yeah, it's definitely, I've, I crossed the line. <laughs> I crossed the line big time, but there were so many ideas that I had that I, I put all of my ideas into the film. And one of the things that you learn as you mature as a writer and as a creator in, um, uh, there's a saying and they say it's like killing your little babies. And it's like all the little, all the little things that you love, all the little ideas that you think are so cool. When it comes to a project, you have to learn how to get rid of them. You have to learn how to cut them out. You have to cut all the excess and the fat off the bone, and really just leave the meat there and get to the point. Grab and grab a viewer's attention, keep that attention, convey and tell a short a story in as short a time as possible, and then get out. And so that's that's really what. Uh, good filmmaking is good filmmaking can tell great filmmaking can tell so many storylines in a short amount of time in a concise amount of space and uh, that's really what I've been working on and learning and when I watch that it's just it's just idea vomit and it's just all over <laughs> the place. Maybe you needed an editor you needed someone with you know an objective point of view to I come had in an and editor. Edit- I had an editor. I didn't edit that video at that oh, point. Oh, okay. At that your point, editor loved all your babies uh, too. I, I take oh, it. Just yeah. Put everything in there. At that point, I didn't know how to operate a camera myself. At that point, I didn't know how to. I could use basic editing software. I didn't know anything about tempo or anything like that. So, editing and color grading weren't something that I did. So I had other people doing all of that. And when I saw things at the end, I just had you know some basic. Oh well, I don't really like how long this is or how long but it wasn't really in depth now when i when i do a film i'd either like to get sent every single draft that comes from an editor or i'd like to be in the room with them as they're editing Mm. and because really your vision has to be it has to be as close to that original vision that you wrote as possible and then also like you have to be the person to when it comes down to it is willing to to cut things short and say hey we're going over here hey we're lingering too long on this moment or in the rare chance that there is an artistic moment that really happens that shines through on set let it breathe a little bit and i feel like that is something that as a director for your vision you have to be there to say because an editor might have a completely different sense of what's going on uh, on the screen, and, and a small edit can completely change the tone of uh, a piece. These feel like nuanced. These feel like very small, nuanced things that you just gather over time. But it sounds to me like you want to direct again. Want to make another movie again sometime in the future? Yeah. Is that what you're? Th- you think yeah. that you might do it again? I, I've I've made I've done something uh, creative every off season uh, that I've been in the league, whether that's shooting a short film producing like the miniseries that we did here with the common cravings. I've done something. I've probably shot at this point, I think I've shot five or six short films since Retribution. 
and every single time trying to tackle another uh, hurdle in the filmmaking world. There's a lot of problems that arise when you're trying to tell a story. There's so many things that come up, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of do's and don'ts. And I like to try to tackle the don'ts so that I can understand why it's a don't. And uh, so I know, you know, if there comes a, a time where I need to use that technique or need to be in this situation, I've done it before and I can tackle it. You know, things like show don't tell i've done like entire short films that have no audio uh i've done a short film where i had no crew where i did it as a running gun one man i set the camera i pulled the focus i was in it i edited it i colored it i i did everything i've done short film where i used anamorphics big heavy expensive lenses that add to your you know your time on set and the preparation and i i've i've tried to really like push myself to learn more about even roles that I might not be uh, in in charge of on set you know on a lot of my larger project projects I'm just directing I'm just the writer director I don't have to pull focus I don't have to I'm not the gaffer I don't have to light things Mm -hmm. but I I did all of that just so that I would have a greater knowledge base for the next time that I'm on set so I can be maybe a little more technical when I'm talking to my crew. I can be a little more sensitive when I'm talking to my actors uh, and coaching them through a scene and trying to get their best performance. I feel like, well, I, I, when I was watching Retribution, you had uh, Todd Gurley. He had a cameo, and you had your coach in there. And th- it only it makes me wonder if you did a film now, a Star Wars sort of a film, with your current Texans teammates, who would you cast, and in what role would you cast them? I feel like you got some potential there in the locker room. There's a lot of potential. There's there's tons. I I I don't think I would do it again per se, but I'll because for for the reason for that hypothetical purposes, everyone says yeah. that they want to be in a film until they realize what the call time is. You know, obviously <laughs> Retribution was my first project. I was in college. I had nothing else to do. I could literally be out on campus shooting all day and not eat and it'd be fine. And and college students had no problem with that now but now when you have like actual crews you have limits you got you got salaries you got you know this and there's rules so that's the reason call times are so early so sure, everybody goes yeah. oh i want to be i want to be in your next film and you tell them okay the call time for extras is 4 30 or 5 a.m <laughs> and none of them show up uh, and you're not getting paid either because exactly. this is low budget. you're not getting you're not getting paid i have to pay there's certain people i have to pay that have to be there uh you're not getting paid but um uh who would i cast yeah, let's just say let's just say that they're all going they're all really willing to just show up at four in the morning for call time. You don't have to pay them. They're gonna happily do it. Who would who would you cast? Who would be your your leading protagonist, uh leading villain, your extras? How would you Star Wars characters? Let's, villain? Let's, Ooh, let's, let's put your good, let's put your teammates in Star I'm going, Wars characters. I'm going Sith Lord is uh the Sith Lord is definitely Tyrod. Not because he's a bad guy, <laughs> but because he just has the hair for it, right? I was going to say his he personality. Has, he has very, very dramatic. Oh, okay. I, I call him Frederick Douglass all the time. Because <laughs> when he takes out his braids, he's got the Frederick, yeah. the Frederick Douglass do going on. And I can just, I can already see what I would want makeup to do with his eyebrows and his, you know, his beard and stuff. I can make Tyrod look like a, a menace. Okay. Uh, and so I would definitely have him as, you know, like the old Sith Lord pulling the strings and things like that. If I had to find uh I, I think my, my comedic relief would definitely be Mark Ingram. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent would be yeah. Mark Ingram. I don't know what I would do with Mark 
I, I might, just for comedic relief, I might make Mark a Jawa or Mark <laughs> uh, an Ewok just because he's hilarious. The fact that people would know that's Mark Ingram under there would just make it even, it would be more, even it would super make funny. It even yeah. more funny. I guess, uh, you know, I could do, uh, man, this is, there's, there's so many, there's so many, so many options uh, and things that you could do. You, you need your, you need your gunslinger, your, your young gun. Uh, you know, we could put, we can make uh, Han Solo could be Davis. Davis could be the Han Solo oh, okay. type character. I, he doesn't talk enough for that though. <laughs> so you you gotta know the personalities of guys. Davis was, doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Davis he... doesn't talk a lot. He's not the smooth the smooth talker. We'll go. We'll, <laughs> we could go uh, Justin Reed for, for that. Han Solo. Yeah, we can do. Oh, Justin we're just swapping Reed. him out. Yeah, Justin Reed for yeah, Han we'll Solo. Yeah, we'll swap him out. He's got to be the silent the silent type. Yeah. Pharaoh, Pharaoh could be uh, Chewbacca because they're the same size, <laughs> uh, technically. <laughs> um, yeah, so I big. mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot what of what about Luke? Ways you that we could go with Luke. that. Uh, Luke Skywalker, man, that's tough. Luke, Darth Vader, you've got some. That some... is tough. I mean, I so I am one hundred percent a fan of originality. If you're going to make even a fan film of an established IP such as Star Wars, you shouldn't use established characters. The universe is so big that you do it a disservice by recasting an icon instead of telling a new story. Oh, okay. Uh, of someone you else. You just create new stories. Create new stories, create new characters. That's what I'm hoping that they're going to do with the, you know, the company that actually owns the IP because there's, there's so many th great things that could happen. Uh, and I think the best way to respect it and to respect Star Wars fans is to tell new stories. And I think that, you know, what, what you've seen from these Disney Plus shows, you know, The Mandalorian and things have really, really shown that. And that's my, that's my serious Star Wars fan talking there. Well, okay, so I have a serious Star Wars question for you. So when you go, for people that haven't watched any of it, there's always this discussion of what's, what order? what's the order. Do you watch it in, I mean, I have my opinion on it. I'm sure you have yours. Do you watch it in chronological order? As in how it, the series of events actually happen, or do you watch it in the order of release? Do you watch all the movies first and then watch the shows, or do you intersperse the TV shows into the movies into some sort of timeline there? So I'll put it this way. The shows always need to come after the movies because the Agreed. shows can introduce things and concepts that you don't understand at all. Now, the only exception to that is The Mandalorian. It can kind of stand alone on its own. It is a space western it is mm -hmm. a gunslinger show so you can watch it all on its own and know nothing about star Wars right that's because true. you're just watching a western but all the other tv shows you need to have a little bit of context with those context with those now when it comes to the films i always break it down this way if you are a person who appreciates the art uh, and the history of the film industry i'd say watch them in the order that they came out because each of the movies were absolutely groundbreaking and revolutionary for their time. When it came yeah. to VFX, when it came to storytelling, everything, the, the visuals, the music, it was all, it was all so ahead of its time. Uh, and, and it connected with a whole generation. So if you appreciate the art of film, 100% watch them in the order that they were made and you'll learn a lot about where certain techniques came from. You'll learn a lot about where other influences in sci-fi and action and drama, where they were gleaned from Star Wars, which gleaned from Dune. <laughs> and, uh, okay, side note. Well, I, I agree with you because I, I think that there's certain surprises that when the movies came out, the fans were shocked and surprised. Yes. And I think if you watch it, 
out of order, you won't have that same reaction that some of us had when we watched the first time This is the around. only caveat, though. If you're not someone who respects the art and the history of film, I would say watch them in the order that they happened, which is watching the, uh, like episode the prequels, one, and then, one yeah. two, three, because I feel like some people don't give it the time to get into the story. If they're watching an old movie and they don't appreciate old movies for what they are, they go, why am I watching this? Like, this I don't like, even understand <laughs> what's happening. Get to the action. And really, those movies weren't about the action. They did have groundbreaking action. They did have uh, Industrial Light Magic, did have these groundbreaking you know, VFX scenes and all of these things. But like, it wasn't about that. It was about the story. It was about the, the characters and their development. And so if you don't appreciate that, definitely watch the new ones because they will grab you with the action. Mm -hmm. And you will be able to glean a little bit from the story. And maybe after watching those three, then you'll be interested enough to say, okay, well, let's watch see these what old happens. movies too. Let's see what happens after that. <laughs> you know, And then they'll stay, they'll stay connected. But really, like, the, getting into the Star Wars fandom for a lot of people is about being at the impressionable age where those movies could take you somewhere far from here and you can learn things about morality, you can learn things about the struggle between good and evil, you can learn things about being enough in a world that sometimes doesn't think that or from the outside will say that you're not. You know, and that that right there connects with a lot of people. That's, that's deep stuff, Chris. That's really deep. Such a fandom around it. All right, you all, you've always been into sci-fi and science, and I read somewhere that you, when you were in third grade, won a science comp science fair competition. Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember what your project was? Yeah, so uh, it was for a science fair, and I was one of the kids who really hated science fairs. Because really, I didn't I didn't want to spend a week of my life preparing, you know, they had those cardboard fold-out yeah, yeah, yeah. things. I didn't want to go home. That's a presentation. It's make, not a project. And yeah. do something, make a presentation about something that 100 kids before me had done. And so I was looking for any loophole that I could find not to make a presentation about something that everyone already knew about. Okay. Uh, and one of the loopholes I found was in the fine print, it said, or an invention. You know, it so was, you invented it was about, something. It was about, yeah, it was about a, a process or, and it said, or invention. They really didn't want you doing inventions. Most I, people <laughs> were making, you know, <laughs> volcanoes or talking about right, right, right. photosynthesis <laughs> and stuff. Uh, but I basically took the part where it said an invention and I looked for a problem in our world to solve it. And that was at the time where Razor scooters were the biggest thing. That in doesn't the world. seem that long ago. Okay, you were in third grade when that happened. Everyone okay. was riding Razor scooters. Yeah. Those metal scooters that when they hit you in the shin, you got a big knot and right. it hurt. Yeah, everybody was riding those. And I noticed that everyone in my cul de sac, all the kids had them. Every, even if they had, like, you know, the off brand, the cheap ones, everybody had a scooter. And that was just the mode of transportation. Oh, I'm going to Jimmy's house. I'm taking my, my scooter. scooter. And they uh -huh. could literally walk across the lawn to Jimmy's house. Yeah. But they rode the scooter. But when they would get there, they would just drop the scooter on the ground and go into his That's garage right. or something. So there were scooters all over the lawns. And I was like, you know what? They need scooter racks just like they have bike racks. Oh. And so I made – it was a really primitive, you know – Obviously, I'm, I was no carpenter or builder. Uh -huh. I made a primitive scooter rack that you could slide your scooter in, you know, with your handlebars, and it would just go in here, and it would stay upright. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say you invented a kickstand for the scooter, but that's even no. better. So uh, a scooter it, yeah. stand. So, so that won you the science fair. It, w it wasn't a science fair that I won. It actually 
was submitted by one of the teachers at my school to the National Young Inventors Program. Oh. They have a competition every year where they take inventions across the country, and they basically try to identify young innovators and basically support them, give them an opportunity to continue to develop their idea, and basically in, they get a small scholarship and basically say, hey, don't stop inventing. This is how you know our That's country yeah. basically moves industries forward. So I won that. It was the Craftsman NSTA Young Inventors Program, and I was one of eight finalists. This makes so much more sense because I read the prize, which was very, a very random assortment of things to me because mm-hmm. I thought it was a science fair. It was a $5,000 savings bond, mm-hmm. a trip to the Nationals to Chicago with your family, yep. and then a visit with Bob Vila yeah. of this old house, which I think as a third grader, did you Bob, know who Bob Vila I was? I knew Bob right? Vila because Bob Vila was in all the Craftsman commercials back uh, then. Oh, yeah. Every single Craftsman tool commercial and – Building were, this and that, so that's I knew who Bob Vila was. Were you was super really cool. excited to meet? But do you remember meeting Bob I Vila? I was, but I remember thinking like, man, my idea is okay. I'm not really sure what these other kids were, and boy, was I right when I got there. These oh, other really? kids' inventions, like <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I told you, I made like this little primitive. It was like a little block of wood. And I had these like angled, you know, pieces of metal that were drilled into it so that you, it was just wide enough for a scooter. And it was like, oh, like that's cute. And I'm watching like these other kids. This one kid like invented like a way to like a machine to automatically, I think it was like to water crops or something like that. Oh, and I'm like, wow, you're the same age as me. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm in a room full of savants. And I just was but like, they're, oh, they're not going to be razor scooters on your cul de sac anymore. So that was a huge problem at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, the scooters aren't as big of a thing anymore. <laughs> but I still do see, you know, these, these bird and, and lime scooters all over the ground. They are everywhere. You know, they could have installed scooter racks all the way back then. We could still be using them. All right, so are you into Squid Game? You know, I watched the first episode. Was it first episode or first two episodes last week? Mm-hmm. And I am intrigued. Now, the problem with that is is I want to binge watch it. but knowing Which is what that, I've heard people generally do. Knowing that I watched the first episode with my wife and she just had a kid, <laughs> it's not really timing up with the ability to binge watch it. And I know she's going to be upset if I watch it. Oh, you can't watch it so without her. So I can't her. watch okay. it anymore. Because yeah. I started it with her. If I would have started it without her, I'd be already done. Right now, so you're a but fan. I take. I, it. I am. You love am. it. Okay. Yeah, I am. I, I I think it's I think it's great. I think some people don't like watching foreign shows and films, and they don't like subtitles, and they don't like. Well, I I didn't think that was the. Stuff. I thought the issue with Squid Game wasn't so much the subtitles as it was the gore, from what I understand, just from oh, what well, I've I mean, heard about it. I I don't mind it. You don't mind the gore. <laughs> I don't mind it. The, the premise is intri- Like for people that don't know, it's it's basically a childhood game that. You play, and if you if you fail, if you fail, you, you die. die. It's yeah. pretty easy. So what 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 would be your Squid Game of choice? What would be your game of a childhood game of choice? I don't know. I haven't watched the whole. I haven't watched the whole first season yet, so I don't really. But have do you have a game from your childhood that you think that you would <laughs> bet on yourself that you would win that game? I mean, I I think that the whole idea of childhood games is just, and I think this is where the show really succeeds is the whole idea of. The fact that when you when you played childhood games as a kid, you didn't really fear anything. You know, when you were a kid, you thought you were invincible. Mm-hmm. You jumped off the jungle gym, you know, playing the floor is lava. You know, you you would climb across the highest part because the floor was lava. But you were literally fearless and, and really playing with the idea of something that we relate to 
in such a in such a area of comfort and then flipping it on its head and making it dangerous. Uh, I think that's one of the psychological bits of that show that just makes it so intriguing to everyone. But I, I feel like if I had to pick, oh, that's scary. <laughs> I love I love playing dodgeball. Oh. But I feel like if you're playing Squid Game dodgeball, you're gonna die. <laughs> well, you're a professional football player, so you do have a, a leg up on. Your competition. Now. You know, I'm, I'm in my mind when I think about playing dodgeball. I'm thinking about playing uh, with dodgeball with other people like me, and that's that's a tough game. Oh. Dodgeball. I'm not thinking about playing yeah. with the no, people I, I played I, with. I, I'm pretty sure that th- you're representing when all I was society. in third grade. Yeah, if all I'm, our normal if society. I'm playing here. dodgeball. <laughs> you're also with, a wide receiver, so with Ugh. ten other me's. No, yeah, of course. I, that is not a bet I want to take. No, or if I'm be. playing dodgeball and Squid Game with the guys in this locker room, and it's not just the <laughs> linemen. I'm not taking that bet. Yeah. They just, just people are too well, athletic at this point. That that makes sense to me. I I'm thinking in society you'd probably you'd probably do pretty well with Squid Game dodgeball, uh, if I had to guess. Hey, when when your life's on the line, you never your know life's what people on the line, do. You'll do All right, Chris. Well, you, you mentioned the baby, so I have to ask you, uh, what's surprised you most? I know it's early on, but anything really stand out to you or surprise you about being a dad so far? I think I would say the fact that She's very attentive. She's very like I get. I get the best. I tell people I get the best parts of the baby because when I come home, she's just awake, <laughs> eyes open, uh, not crying, not screaming, nothing. She just wants to sit there and hang out. But I have help. You know, my my sister was here, my mother in law was here, and they uh, have been watching the baby during the night. So I've been able to sleep at night and you know do my recovery and get ready for practice. But um, I, I definitely was not expecting her to like have such a like 180 change. You know, she goes from being like so cool, calm, and everything's fine with dad, uh-huh. and then I, you know, get downstairs in the morning as I'm leaving, and it's like, hey, how'd she sleep? It's like she did it. Oh, <laughs> it's like, you know, like really, like I, I've never seen her do that. She, she just seems really, so happy when I'm around. I don't know. She what's doesn't like if she cries around me. It's for like. Just like a couple minutes, and then just then it's just cool. She's just chilling. Wow. Yeah, but then like she's apparently she's up all night. Well, you're sleeping, so you wouldn't. Uh, you just have to take everyone else's word for it that she was. Yeah, you know. Good for but, you for getting some sleep, though. You no, know, she's but she's been she's been great. She's wide eyed and uh, and beautiful. All right. Well, congratulations. Great week. Can't wait to see what the rest of the season has in store and you know what i'm gonna have to hit you up again when some of these star wars these prequels and sequels come out and get your thoughts on them i know i'm i'm terrified but i hope they're <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like you're the pro good. i have to ask you i'm such i'm such a fan that i'm actually i'm hopeful with you know with the leadership that they've kind of allowed to do their thing now letting directors tell their stories instead of telling a director what story oh, to okay. tell you know i i think that's a good model for filmmaking I hope that they continue to do that. Let people tell the stories. You know, you brought him in to tell a story. Let him tell it. I like it. He's very hopeful and optimistic about Star Wars. Yeah. Good to know. All right, thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for the time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Some things that we didn't even get into with Chris. He was born in Turkey on an Air Force base. His father had a career in the United States Air Force. We didn't talk about his uh, latest creation this offseason. He 
toured around restaurants in Houston and gave his reviews. You can check him out on Instagram. He posts all of them. So he's got a lot going on, and he's um, we could have probably gone another 30 minutes easily. He's he's very thoughtful in his responses, which I appreciate. And, uh, you know, he, he has a lot of experience in directing, which is also very cool. So I think it'd be fun to – he'd be a fun person to watch a movie or a TV show with and then get his take on it because I feel like he sees everything through – a director's lens or a writer's lens. So um, that might be hey, that might be an off-season show, watching things with Chris Conley. Uh, but first, the Texans, they are traveling up to Indianapolis to play the Colts at Lucas Oil Stadium. It's only their second divisional game so far of 2021. Obviously, they beat the Jags in week one, and here they go. They're going to try to beat the Colts and get back in the win column. Both teams at one and four. And the last time the Texans won up in Indianapolis was September 30th, 2018. If you remember, that was an overtime win. And the final score was 37-34, which which goes to show you the last six games that the Texans have played against the Colts have all been one-score games. Wins and losses. Everything's been either a field goal or a touchdown. Last year, the Texans lost both of their games to the Colts, but they were both within a touchdown. So um, this is always a great matchup. It's always a lot of fun. And I had a chance to catch up with Lara Overton. She was talking about the the Colts coming off their really tough Monday night loss um, against the Ravens. Really tough for them, but... You know what? I, I wasn't complaining because it, it gets them at one and four, just like the Texans, and this division's up for grabs. So um, obviously the Texans' first order of business is to get a win, but you know what? The division is right there, so it certainly makes things very interesting whenever these two teams play each other. So let's take a listen to Behind Enemy Sidelines with Lara Overton of the Indianapolis Colts. Lara, I was just saying you look so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for being on a short week, especially a short week that ended in an overtime loss for the Colts, but Give us a sense. What's the mood in the building as these Colts get ready to turn around and face the Texans on Sunday? Man, tight turnaround indeed. And that's always tough, but you feel like with the result the Colts had on Monday night, it's a good time to have this short week because you need to put that one to bed as quickly as possible. Move right on. You have a a huge opportunity this weekend back at home after three straight really tough road games against a division opponent in the Houston Texans. So it's one of those where the Colts need to move on and put that really that huge defeat, that disappointing loss, a ton of emotion. You probably saw a lot of the guys uh, after at the podium and really just how devastated they were to let that 19 point lead slip away in a hostile environment against an incredible team in the Baltimore Ravens. But there were so many good things when you go back and you look at the way that Carson Wentz played, passing for more than 400 yards, the play of Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman making an incredible catch. There are a lot of components within this Colts team that they feel they're taking the proper steps and getting to where they want to be. But make no mistake, there is it's tough to recover from a loss like that from allowing you know the Ravens to get back into it as late into the game as you did, especially when this is a defense that really prides itself on being able to match up and to stop a variety of different offenses. But there's just you know no match for the former NFL MVP in Lamar Jackson and just with how special he is at quarterback and what he's able to do for that offense. And 
you know, there were certainly issues in special teams, issues with this defense in terms of just personnel lost a number of guys due to injury over the course of that game. So the Colts need to capitalize on having an opportunity back at home to continue to build on the good things that they saw and also correct a lot of things that allowed, you know, that win to slip away from them on Monday night. Yeah, you mentioned good things that happened, and, and Carson Wentz was so impressive. You mentioned the 400 yards passing. He was averaging 11 and a half yards per pass. I just remember a few weeks ago seeing him on the injury report with ankles, like as in both ankles, and he continued to play. How, how has he bounced back from that injury, and has it limited him in any way? It has been, I mean, mind-blowing to see the recovery that he made as quickly as he was able to when we saw him get knocked out at the end of that game against the Rams at home and he was on the sideline getting the attention made every attempt he could to come back into the game was not able to because of just how quickly you know when you think about ankle sprains those develop so quickly to where that swelling sets in and your mobility is completely restricted so you look at how limited he was within the offense against the Tennessee Titans when they played in Nashville, looked a little bit better against Miami, and then made immense strides against Baltimore. Still not 100%. I don't think that you can say whatsoever that he's 100% right now with those ankle sprains, but to have made the significant improvement over the course of three weeks, because when you think about a high ankle sprain and uh, the severity that that can lead to the kind of range that there is with an ankle sprain with a quarterback who does pride himself on having a degree of mobility. And that's something we certainly did not have within this offense last year with Phillip Rivers. Phillip Rivers did so many things well, and he was such a productive quarterback within this system. But that was something that was exciting for the Colts, when you do bring in a quarterback like Carson Wentz, who does have a different level that you haven't necessarily had to work with and the options that does create within your offense. And man, week one, we saw it. We saw him making plays really effectively with his with his feet, keeping plays alive, extending plays the way that he was able to. And so you're starting to see two things. Yes, he is getting healthier. He's also getting more comfortable relying on his receivers and targeting a number of different weapons that he has within this offense. The way he's spreading the ball around has been one of the most intriguing things to watch over the last three weeks because initially it was a lot of, you know, heavy on Zach Pascal early on in those first two games, and rightfully so. Zach's an incredibly reliable receiver and, and is one of those. He's a really crafty route runner what he's able to do, the positions he's able to put himself in, the separation he's able to get. But now you're seeing more tight ends involved. I'm thinking about two different touchdowns to Mo Alley-Cox in the game against the Miami Dolphins. Against the Ravens, you saw Mo, you saw Kylan Granson, a lot of Michael Pittman Jr., Paris Campbell starting to get involved. And all this is happening still without T.Y. Hilton, who remains uh, on IR at this point with that neck procedure that he had. So those are the things that I'm really starting to see this offense taking shape and identity of what it wants to be with Carson Wentz. And you certainly needed to see more of those explosive plays. That was something that they wanted to see as they started to integrate Carson into the offense. And that's starting to pay dividends as he is really starting to create more chemistry, more continuity with his receivers. And that's mainly not 
because of the injury. That really goes back to the very limited time that he had missing the majority of training camp because of the foot injury that he had. And then, of course, going on the COVID-19 close contact list right prior to that season opener. So this offense is starting to take shape. Now it's time for this defense to start making those similar strides as well and being able to do a lot of what they prided themselves on in the 2020 season, especially being more effective in stopping the run. Well, Frank Reich has had to deal with so many quarterbacks for the Colts over the past few years that he's been with the team last year with Phillip Rivers and, and this year with Carson Wentz, but he's got that familiarity with Wentz from their, from their time with the Eagles. How much has that really helped and, and how much did he really adapt that offense to suit Wentz's attributes? A different quarterback every season under Frank Reich, when you think about it, Andrew Luck, Jacoby Brissett, Philip Rivers and and um, Carson Wentz. So you did have Jacoby, of course, for you know all of 2019, and then he was in the backup role in 2020. And then you went head to head with your former quarterback when you played him in Miami. So it's been very interesting in that he's been scheming this offense uh, for these different quarterbacks, and then also had to scheme against that quarterback when you talked about that Week Four matchup that they had against the Miami Dolphins. Then just this week. Carson Wentz, when he passed for over 400 yards, as we noted, became the fourth quarterback in franchise history to eclipse that mark, joining Andrew Luck, Peyton Manning, and Johnny Unitas as the only quarterbacks to do that. So you're starting to see a lot of what Frank Reich had kind of promised to Jim Ursay and to Chris Ballard when he pitched the idea of, what do you think about going in and getting Carson Wentz? Um, and obviously Carson was looking for that new chapter looking to create, um, you know, a new uh, new chapter in his career, starting off in a new place after everything, you know, after everything went the way it did at, at the final um, few months of his career with the Philadelphia Eagles. And yes, I think you take elements of what they had success doing in Philadelphia because not only do you have Frank Reich, you have Mike Grow as well, who was part of that staff in Philly. You have Press Taylor uh, now with the organization as well, who was also one of those who worked closest, closest with Carson during their time with the Eagles. But one of the points of emphasis in bringing Carson in was that he did not have to carry this offense entirely on his own shoulders. And it wasn't, we have to have him play at that MVP level that he was back in 2017 in order for this offense to be successful. No, this is an offense that already had a, you know, solidified offensive line. You have an incredible running game, not only with Jonathan Taylor, but also with Naheem Hines, Marlon Mack. You have a number of weapons, both at tight end and in, in, in the receiving in the wide receiver room. And then you had this defense kind of anchored by Darius Leonard and DeForest Buckner that you could rely upon as well that prides itself on being able to be very opportunistic you know creating those takeaway opportunities scoring on defense doing those different things so yes I do think that they adapted the offense somewhat to Carson but not so much to rely on Carson having to carry this offense but being able to more so put him in position to be successful because it's certainly playing to his strengths but then also his strengths uh, as complement to the guys who he has to work around and utilizing, you know, Jonathan Taylor, who finished the 2020 season as one of the top three 
backs in the NFL and really didn't come on until later in the season when you saw him starting to have those 100-yard-plus rushing games that he did. Now he followed up a 100-yard rushing performance against Miami with a 100-yard receiving performance against the Ravens. So you're starting to see certainly this offense taking shape, not just in what they have game planned to do with Carson, but also with Carson being able to use everything else that he has at his disposal. You mentioned T.Y. Hilton and Texans fans certainly know a lot about him, but he has been on IR so far. So what can you tell us about his return this year? And also you mentioned Michael Pittman, how he's uh, really stepped up in his place. One of the things, I'm going to go to Pittman first because I had a conversation with Frank Reich about Michael Pittman just yesterday, and he brought up the the physical presence, the physicality that Pittman plays with at the receiving position is something that they want to heavily build on because he is a big body that you haven't necessarily had within this Colts offense. The Colts have had a ton of success with receivers like T.Y. Hilton, who are more of those speed guys, smaller body guys, but who do pride themselves on, you know, the incredible route running, being incredibly fast, you know, tough to cover in a number of different situations, being the guys who are just able to basically capitalize on the mismatch of speed that they have and able to, you know, uh, be very elusive to DBs. So Pittman is a nice compliment to that in the fact that he is able to kind of what we saw from Mo Ali Cox go over the top of a DB's head, you know, almost those you got mossed type of scenarios and just that battle of will being able to, you know, even when you have those contested catch scenarios, they're able to will their way into making those catches, making those completions a possibility. And Michael Pittman Jr. had the injury in 2020 that cost him multiple weeks when he was just starting to find a groove with Philip Rivers. So he came into the season, and this is something I talked to Frank about, Michael Pittman coming into the 2021 season, he was one of the most motivated guys that Frank has ever worked with because of the way, the result that you had Buffalo in the playoffs. Michael went into Frank's office and just had this motivation, and he was just absolutely obsessed with making sure that he picked up where he left off or came into the 2021 season even better in terms of how he went into the off season, how he committed himself to his training, to his workouts, all of those things, the time that he spent, um, you know, with the other receivers and with Carson Wentz getting up to speed uh, with what they were going to do and what this offense was looking to do. And then T.Y. Hilton, Coach Reich said that he continues to make strides with that rehab the difficulty when you're talking about a 30-year-old receiver who has a neck procedure is you don't want to rush him back, even though we know that T.Y. has been a quick healer over the course of his career and really has not had a number of major injuries aside from what he did, you know, in the end of that 2019 season, that lower leg injury that he had. So this is something where they're treating it, you know, very cautiously because, the severity of dealing with anything, you know, related to that spinal cord area. So you do think that it's optimistic that here toward, you know, you would like to think that before the midway point in the season, it is an option to bring TY off of IR. It's nothing that they expected would be season ending. So I, you, you look to, this is a good stretch where the Colts have um, four of the next five 
home game opportunities, that this is a point where is it a possibility that you start to integrate T.Y. Hilton? Because I don't think it's necessarily going to be a situation where you thrust him in and he's not on a pitch count. You think about getting him in, working his way in, kind of having some scripted plays where you see where, where his comfort level is, where his timing is with Carson Wentz as well. But make no mistake, the Colts are certainly expecting when T.Y. Hilton gets back, he's going to be a big piece of this offense and going to be someone who you do target in those clutch type of situations, you know, game ceiling situations on the line. Because aside from T.Y., this is a very young receiver room. When you kind of look at the rest of the guys around him and he's a captain, he's one of the most, um, you know, well-respected leaders within that locker room. He's a quiet leader, you know, not a very vocal guy but certainly your lead by example guy. He's an emotional leader. He is the heart and soul. When you talk about these uh, offensive weapons and what he brings, he means an awful lot. And just his presence within the room can do a lot for the rest of these young receivers who you're working with. Michael Pittman, Paris Campbell, still you know one of the young guys in that room. All of the different guys who you're working with right now and t- turning to Michael Strawn, I'm thinking of, you know, another one as well coming out of this 2021 draft class who's looking to really mold out and carve out a role within this offense who kind of need T.Y. Holton to be that leader to show them the ropes and help all of these guys progress and develop over the course of the season. All right. Well, let's switch gears and talk about the defense. Matt Eberflus obviously um, has done uh, a number of good things over his time with the Colts, but in Sunday's game against the Ravens uh, in the first half, They were able to hold Lamar Jackson to uh, four consecutive puns and just a field goal. What changed in the second half and what does the defense take away from that game on what they could do better? Lamar started finding Mark Andrews. I think that was where you you had the difficulty was that on touchdowns and two point conversions. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Two different occasions. That was where things really swung in a different direction. And that was something that both Coach Reich and Coach Eberflus noted was how much of a elite passer that Lamar Jackson has become early on in his career. He was so well noted, of course, for what he does in their run game and the elusiveness that he has, but where he has really developed and become an even greater threat is because of his arm. And now he has both of those things that you have to adjust for. And that was what the Colts simply did not have an answer for that ended up being the nail in the coffin with, you know, Hollywood Brown, having the game-clinching, game-winning touchdown. So you do have a depleted group in that secondary. Um, You saw Xavier Rhodes leave the game. He's now in concussion protocol. Anderson Deho, also now in concussion protocol. You did not have Rocky Asin in that game. He missed a second straight game as well. So you look at the personnel, and that was certainly, you know, a detriment late to the Colts. It's you know, frighteningly similar to what the Colts saw in 2020 when they had the Ravens at home and you went into, you started the second half, you had a lead, you had done a good job of containing that offense early on and they made the necessary adjustments that were able to figure out ways, you know, to mount a comeback. And that's exactly what they did yet again. And this defense has struggled to close out games. And that's something that guys like Darius Leonard have been very honest about. They've got to come out and play four quarters, four complete quarters. And we've yet to be able to see that, see them do just that early on. 
They were effective with the pass rush. You were able to get to Lamar Jackson on a couple of different occasions with guys, you know, like Taekwon Lewis and Alkadine Muhammad up there. You, uh, Kamoko Ture, also one of your guys. You did not have Quiddy Pay, your first round pick. Again, a second straight game missed for him. He got injured in that game against the Tennessee Titans. He has a hamstring issue that he's dealing with. This is a big point where the Colts are going to have to defensively figure out a way to play complementary football, you know, in all four quarters and come out, you know, in quarters three and four with the same type of effort you had quarters one and two. All right. Well, you, you mentioned injuries. And I think uh, one interesting story on a short week is the situation of the kicker, Rodrigo Blankenship, who had a tough game uh, on Monday night, but then I uh, saw some reports that he may have to go an MRI and may may have to miss time or, or, or does he not? What, what, do, what do the Colts plan to do with the, their kicker situation heading into Sunday on such a short week? It is a great question. Rodrigo noted that he had a stabbing pain that began in warmups on Monday night in his right hip. So as he was bringing that leg back, he felt that issue kind of begin uh, to arise. And that's something that he was battling through that led to an MRI on Tuesday. One thing that you note, should this be a situation in which you are going to lose Rodrigo Blankenship for a number of games, you had Eddie Pinero in training camp who kicked very well in some of those preseason games before he was ultimately released. And you did rely on bringing you know, Rodrigo back for a second straight season. You think about too, I mean, Rodrigo in a rookie year kicked a game-winning field goal in overtime to beat the Green Bay Packers at Lucas Oil Stadium. This is a guy who's been incredibly clutch. This is uncharacteristic for him to have the type of game that he did. And that's why you look to, this is certainly a concerning injury issue for your second year kicker. So I believe that one of the situate one of the uh, options you could explore is if Rodrigo is going to miss time, do you bring Eddie back? He's a guy who you're familiar with already from the few weeks that you had with him, you know, back in July and August, he's, you know, was very well respected, very well liked around the building. So that's an option. Also, I mean, Rigoberto Sanchez, your punter, he kicked and punted when he was in college. So is that an option that you explore? He does kick in some scenarios. So it's going to be interesting. You have a few different things that you could look to. Also, you you hope above all that this is a, a minor issue for, for Rodrigo, that perhaps he's able, you're able to um, do some maintenance on that hip. And maybe it's not quite as severe that's going to cost him any amount of time because he truly is, I mean, he is one of the most popular, well-liked guys within this fan base. He has created a, a massive following with his respects and, you know, hot rod and all the different things. So you certainly hope that this is not something that is detrimental to him that costs him a significant amount of time. So certainly hoping that this is an issue that they're able to treat, get him back on the field as quickly as possible couple of different things that you're looking to is Eddie Pinero an option or is Rigo Sanchez an option for you? Lots to look for this week um, on a short week for the Colts. And as the Texans get their road tour started up at Indianapolis, Lara Overton, team reporter for the Indianapolis Colts. Lara, always a pleasure chatting and catching up with you. And we'll do it again later, later on this season. Look forward to it. Can't wait to get down there. See you guys in Houston. Back to being on the road, at least in some situations. So looking forward to that as well, because we know anytime you talk about division matchups, especially Colts-Texans, it's always an interesting one. Always a great battle between those two. 
it's always hard fought. It's always, it seems like it's been a nail biter the last few years. So appreciate it, Lara. Thanks for the time and we'll chat soon. All right. Since I had that interview with Lara, T.Y. Hilton did return to practice this week. So we'll have to wait and see what his status is for Sunday's game. But that neck injury that he had, uh, you know, I was I was reading some stuff about him. He really thought that he was going to have to retire. It was so bad. So I know he's motivated to play the Texans, but if he needs another week of rest, I'm not going to complain. He's had some big, big career days. So he's always a challenge, as is Jonathan Taylor, as is Carson Wentz with the way he's playing. So looks to be a great game up on Sunday. And you know what? Before the game, be sure to check out our pregame show, Texans Unlimited, presented by Verizon. Drew Doherty and I bring you a live look at the field before the game. We answer fan questions. We get into your inactives and actives and inactives for the game, which is always interesting because you never know with uh, injuries and, and whatnot who's active and who's a healthy scratch. So we get into all that before the game. That's usually about an hour before kickoff. So 11 o'clock central time and you can watch that on the houston texans mobile app um, and it's on all every social media platform so be sure to check it out we really like doing that show a lot of people in our department work on it and be sure to check out uh, the entire week of practice i'm going to have notes and quotes up on houstontexans.com as well as you can check out the top stories of the week so that's going to do it for this week's podcast the deep slant podcast presented by xfinity thank you so much for listening and as always go texans